I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hope you are all well, witches. On today's episode, we are going to be looking at the second part of the horned goddess, specifically Ellen of the Ways. Before we get started, I thought I would give you a little update from the countryside that nobody asked for. A little bit of a trigger warning, this does get a little bit gross. So this week I came home from dropping my daughter off at college to find a dead rabbit on my driveway, the second one of late. First time round, I assumed it was a fox because there was no way it could have been my ridiculously tiny sweet cat who was the runt of the litter. So he's very small, truly adorable. So I had no idea he is the Jeffrey Dahmer of the local cat world. When we lived at our old address, he never brought anything home, but a move to the countryside has triggered his inner psycho and a love for spleens and livers. The weirdest thing was the the rabbit's ears were left there. They'd like popped off, but there was no head anywhere to be found. So I envisaged coming into the house to a scene from The Godfather where instead of a horse head, a tiny rabbit head would be found in my pink bed covers where my cat loves to reside most of the time. So the cat is now giving some real Marlon Brando energy and I'm not sure how I feel about this, especially if he is hunting because he thinks that, I mean, I'm pretty certain that I'm not missing any meals or incapable of feeding myself. Another anecdote of this week. So on a trip to the gym the other day, you might remember me saying I went to the little local library I recently joined. And when I was in there the first time, somebody shouted out to a man in there, oh, Vicar, will you be doing the service this Sunday? And I kind of froze like a rabbit in the headlights no pun intended, which I tend to do in any close proximity to the church. No shade at all. Just every experience of me walking into a church has felt as though I may burst into flames at any moment. Anyway, the vicar's really sweet and it appears he goes to my gym. He actually reminds me a little of a real life version of the vicar from Wallace and Gromit, specifically the Curse of the Were-Rabbit film, another rabbit reference. So he was in there pumping iron, really going for it. 
the music in the gym is so loud. Like sometimes I can't even hear the music on my headphones. However, <laughs> I did hear the Alexa in the gym begin to play the house track Messy in Heaven. And I proceeded to watch the horror in the vicar's eyes and heard him like let out this kind of slight guffaw at the line of the song. I heard Jesus did cocaine on a night out and I had to hold in so much laughter. I mean, I did catch him laughing afterwards meekly, but it just seemed the most, <laughs> the most unsuitable song for the gym to be smashing out. Anyway, today's episode, we're going to be looking at Ellen of the Ways. It is going to be a long episode. I think I have uncovered so much more to look at that I hope will be of interest. Our book review today is Waking Up in 5D by Maureen J. St. Germain. I actually discovered this book via Pinterest wanted to go a bit deeper with some of my manifesting. This book didn't disappoint. This book challenged me, I'm not going to lie, I had to reread quite a few bits. I have been working on manifesting for a number of years, but I wanted to understand more about the 5D and energy, so I felt that I would give this a go. I picked up so many things from this book that will stay with me and have immediately influenced different things that I'm doing now. For example, the language I use when I talk about myself, but also concepts around time and aging. I've always believed that words are spells, as do most of us witches. So I genuinely do try to be mindful of the words I use. I think my downfall is I can say self-deprecating things about myself if I'm like paid a compliment or something like that. And I know I need to work on that. So that did bring up a bit of a realization around that. So the book sheds a light on ascension, the five dimensions, tools for 5D living, how to know you are there time and space continuum, recognizing when you are in the higher dimensions and also activating your higher chakras. So she talks about the concept of with our time on earth, we can choose between it being like heaven or hell. All manifesting aside, I do believe that sometimes you can be born into absolute hell upon this earth and your outer circumstances can dictate how your life will play out from the beginning, be it educationally, financially and the like. And of course, we hear of so many success stories of people that have turned things around completely. I don't mean that if that happens, somebody is doomed to be stuck where they are. But I also don't want to make the Molly May mistake of saying we all have 24 hours in the day like Beyonce, because let's be honest, we all have advantages, disadvantages that may have been cast upon us before we were even born, let alone on our journey. 
I am a very positive thinker, but I think it would be inexcusable and naive of me to state we can all manifest from the same starting blocks. Anyway, coming back to the book, I think energetically, if we can work with the form of energy that she talks about, the world would be a greater place for us individually and everybody that we come into contact with. I like to think within my own little dimension that I can make my life heaven or hell through the mindset I have, the language I use, the routines that I have. It's my choice what I will receive by what I put out. I also don't buy into the toxic manifesting side where people kind of claim that you need to be positive all the time. I do believe that you know, so recently I've been doing a lot of work on counselling and things like that and had a counselling session the other day and I kind of just cried for two days afterwards because I released something that absolutely terrified me. But I didn't kind of in that moment think, that's it, like everything I put out to manifest isn't going to come into fruition, you know, because I'd stepped out of that sort of more positive energy I don't go around avoiding shadow work or any dark emotions that come up, even though I'm trying to manifest things, which I know can be a little bit confusing, even for myself, when people talk about manifesting and so on, and some of the toxic positive messages that are out there. So I'm working on honoring when I have like the overwhelming urge to cry or murder someone. (laughs) through anger or, you know, any of the emotions that come up without sort of thinking that that's it, I'm not going to manifest what I want. That's what I'm trying to say, you know, don't kind of think that this book is going to just say, oh, you've just got to think positive. It's not one of those kinds of books. It does get really deep and it is also quite realistic. Realistic, but in some parts gets really woo-woo and there were certain bits that I did struggle with because I'm just not there yet with the mindset. I've got to do a little bit of work on myself in that respect, if that makes sense. I like how this book talks about how systems that are in place in society can seriously affect our ability to look outside the box. It was looking at ways that you can go against the grain in that respect for mindset. Some takeaways I had are in regards to aging. So being careful of the language that you use. If we look at advertising aimed at all of us nowadays, so much of it is about aging. So it was kind of discussing, you know, refusing to use language like you're getting old or older because our subconscious will believe it. And our subconscious has no eyes or it just believes what we speak of. So every time we say anything like this, it confirms to our subconscious that we are aging or whatever it is that we're saying as a negative or kind of going against what we want to bring in. In my humble opinion, us witches are the OGs of manifesting. I like to treat manifesting like playing a game. I do find it really fun. It depends on how much emotion is connected to what I want to bring in. I do try to kind of like challenge myself with lots of little things that I want to manifest. 
This book talks a lot on the energy that you kind of need to get into. There's some amazing tools to use, but also so much food for thought, especially in regards to how society really is set up for us to not be knowing this stuff. Tinfoil hats at the ready, but it's definitely worth reading to just kind of understand how you can sort of step outside of that matrix. Key takeaways that I had from this book were about working on your pineal gland in respect of foods to eat, meditation, self-care. I do want to get into this on the podcast as well. There's so much that I don't know in regards to this, but I do think it would be really interesting for us to look at. One of the quotes that I picked up within the book was, keep the pineal gland opening and you won't grow old you will always be young thought that was really interesting so definitely a topic that I felt we could look at so there were also like different intentions and mantras in there that I could set between me and the universe or angels before I went to sleep so I could connect even further with my conscious to get clarity on purpose service, mission, also for messages in your dreams and so on. There's also one for the morning before you go about your day. There is a section on a higher self practice, which is kind of an agreement to not perform any divination for I think it's 45 days, which I've been working on, and purely connecting and asking your higher self questions. This was a really interesting concept because this works on ensuring your ego will want to be best friends with your higher self because it will trust following this experiment that your higher self is the best resource to rely upon and always brings forth your best and highest choices. There are some great tips in this book in regards to not looking back at the past in respect of old beliefs and patterns. So how to release them and not adopt the same going forward. This aspect of the book was fascinating. I really benefited from that section. The only parts of the book I struggled with were when she went into accessing your higher chakras she got into crystal grids and I think it's macabre but I'm just not there yet it is a part of the book that I would probably come back to there was also a section on serendipities so yes there's definitely more for me to work on with this book it's definitely a real out there book which I loved but I felt like I needed to be in the zone for. I have realized, however, that as a result, I have had so many weird dreams and psychic dreams. I've had two events that I had a dream about on the day that they happened. And this has been like really interesting. There's been lots of different messages that I've had through in dreams. This has always been something that I've experienced. I've had like numbers come up in dreams and so on. So I do feel like as a result of the things that I'm practicing from the book, it has led to some activations for me. 
I've also bored a lot of my friends by talking to them about the concepts in the book. So they've clearly been imprinted on my mind. I'm really passionate about this book. So if this is your thing and you want to make some real leaps and bounds energetically, but obviously with your manifestations as well, I really think this is worth a read. Join me after the break to talk all about the horned goddess. ways is linked to the times of Beltane, spring, May 22nd and August 18th and we will get into specifically why those dates. She is linked to the waxing moon phase. The food linked to her is said to be apple. The tree is elder. In respect of animals or wildlife but specifically the deer, colours are green, red, orange Offerings would be anything from nature, dried preserved flowers, branches, twigs, moss, deer, antlers, naturally sourced of course, raw crystals and stones, white or green candles. This is a quote from the author Ellen Sentia. This is from the book Ellen of the Ways. She is one of the authors that I've continuously seen in respect of Ellen of the Ways, most of her work is based on this goddess. Learning Ellen's ways will help you learn about the life we share on this beautiful planet. Everything changes and only so does everything remain. Ellen's ways lead us back to knowing this and living it. The art of letting go, of not knowing best, of being full of expectancy, but without expectation. This is walking the deer trods. Through the course of time, there have been several different Ellens, Helens and Helenas combined in myth and legend. For some reason, my dad says the word Helen really strange. I don't know, he says it, Helen, it always makes me laugh. Ellen is a representation of the land of Britain itself and it is said that she was likely a goddess from a much earlier time, one who could have presided over the dream pathways, a culmination of legend, myth and history. So through today's episode, there is going to be information from an amazing essay that I came across called Ellen of the Ways, Celestial Reindeer and the Tree of Life by Chris Wood. I will link this in the show notes. It is definitely worth a read. I'm not going to try to rewrite this. This chap has done a sterling job in regards to the research that he did in regards to Ellen of the Ways. Ellen is also linked to migratory birds the swans and geese which fill the empty winter skies with sound, and to dogs. 
She is a mother giving her white milk and guiding her offspring across the snow. In the Arctic and boreal forest, it is common to see drinking scoops fashioned of horn, bone, wood, birch bark or tin, sometimes used for catching the milk of semi-domesticated reindeer. Their shape is practical and significant. The utensil is also known as a dipper with the shape of the constellations of Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, which particularly in America are called the Big and Little Dipper respectively. Celestial aspects. So Ellen is not only associated with the movement of humans and animals across the land, the journeys of celestial bodies are also part of her being. The pole star is currently one of those in Ursa Minor, but for 3,500 years until 15,000 years ago, it was in the constellation of Cygnus, also known as the Northern Cross, which is significant as will be seen. The pole star marks the point about which the heavens appear to rotate, the axis mundi or world tree. Ellen's antlers represent this tree and are reminiscent of other world myths, such as that of the celestial Ganges gushing down from the region of the circumpolar stars to be caught in Siva's hair, thence to run in a beneficent fashion out over the earth. Ellen is also associated with those closer, directly vital luminaries, the sun and the moon. The Sami sun goddess Bevi Bevi or Bevi, as I mentioned on last week's podcast episode, I haven't been able to find the pronunciations for these, I'm afraid. Mother to all creatures is associated with reindeer and the spark of light between antlers as a promise of the returning sun is a widespread image. From the Christ stag of Saints Eustace and Hubert, to the candle on the stang of traditional witchcraft. Reindeer are also associated with spirit flight to the sun across the north of Eurasia. It was in 1886 that Sir John Rees linked Ellen of the Hosts with the dawn and the dusk, an idea which has stuck. However, Rees changed his mind enigmatically right at the end of his text, linking her to the moon. On one level, it is all the same. No one who has seen the moon or sunrise or set over the sea will forget the shining path on the water leading to their feet. So this information that I'm going to get into now is by Caroline Wise, another very well-recognised author who much of her work is about Ellen of the Ways. The research of various Earth Mysteries explorers over the years shows that Lays had several functions and interpretations, all of them probably valid, but it was the idea of lays as shamanic flight paths that was relevant to Ellen in her guises of both Empress and the Reindeer Woman. It is now well known that the Father Christmas story is based on the older non-Christian shamans of Lapland. 
The story goes that to aid their shamanic flights and trance, the shamans needed the properties of the fly agaric mushroom. This is, of course, the fabulous red and white toadstool of fairy stories, the one our mothers warned us never to eat. Taking the mushroom can be risky or at least unpleasant because of toxins it contains. The shamans noted that the reindeer ate the mushrooms which grew around the silver birch trees and suffered no ill effects. The shaman lets the substance pass through the reindeer, neutralising the toxins and then drinks its urine. The active ingredients are unaffected and the shaman enters his trance and begins his flight. Above the snow, he can see the herds, see the predators and gains helpful knowledge for the tribe. He gains wisdom of the plants and healing. As the fly agaric opens the gateways for him to be able to commune with the spirits of the land, the beasts and the ancestors, he carries back the gifts of healing and also news of the herds. When finishing his trance session, the shaman would enter the yurt through the smoke hole and slide down the central silver birch pole with his bag of healing plants and his paraphernalia, Father Christmas coming down the chimney. The shaman's colours are red and white, like the fly agaric, and Father Christmas's costume as he rides through the sky in his sleigh drawn by reindeer. Ellen is best known from Welsh legend in the Mabinogion, the earliest Welsh prose. Ellen appears in the story, The Dream of Maxon Ledig. The historical figure Magnus Maxinus or Magnus Maximus became the basis for a number of Welsh and English legends. According to Geoffrey of Monmouth, he was king of the Britons following the death of Octavius during the reign of Emperor Constantine I. The Mabinogion tells of Maxon Ledig marrying the daughter of a Carnarvon-based chieftain. Although fictionalised, the story has a degree of fact. The tale begins with Maxon Ledig, Emperor of Rome, falling into a deep sleep after going hunting. He dreams of journeys of rivers, mountains and valleys. Eventually, he finds a great city with a vast castle and a huge fleet of ships. He boards the largest ship, which sets sail along the seas and oceans before arriving at wondrous lands. He comes to a castle with a hall covered in gold, silver and precious stones. Seated are two youths playing chess, dressed in jet black satin. Elsewhere in the hall is a man sitting in an ivory chair and a maiden of great beauty. The maiden rises from her chair and the man embraces her. Emperor Maxon Ledig awakes at this point. Consumed by love for the maiden seen in his dream, Maxon Ledig mounts his horse and goes forth to Rome. On his arrival, he is withdrawn, choosing to sleep rather than engage in the people of the household. In each of his dreams, he sees the beautiful maiden. He compares her beauty with that of the sun, believes her to be radiant and queenly. 
One day, the page of his chamber tells Maxon Ledig that the people are turning against him because they get neither message nor answer from him. The wise men of Rome are brought before the emperor and he tells them of his dream. The wise men instruct Maxon to send messengers for three years to the three parts of the world to seek the beautiful maiden. Eventually they come to the vast city and its castle. They cross the sea in the giant ship which takes them to Britain. They ride until they come to Snowdon. Behold, said they, the rugged land that our master saw. They continue to Anglesey and Arvon. At Abersane, they find a castle at the mouth of the river. They go inside and into the hall from the dream. They see the two youths playing chess, the man carving chess pieces, and the maiden in the chair of gold. The messengers proclaim the maiden empress of Rome. She tells them she will not go with them to Rome. If Max and Lady gloves her, he must come to her. They return to Rome and tell the emperor of their findings. With his guides, Max and Ledig goes to Britain and finds Abersane, the castle of his dream. He sees Kynan and Adion playing chess and their father, Eudiv, son of Caradoc, carving chessmen. Then he spies the maiden named Helen from his dream. Empress of Rome, he says, all hail, and the emperor throws his arms about her neck and that night she becomes his bride. The following day, she asks for Britain for her father and three chief castles made for her, the largest in Arvon. The emperor grants this. The other castles are built in Caerleon and Carmarthen. The emperor remains for seven years, building castles and roads throughout Britain. The length of time spent away from Rome means he is banished from returning and he loses his high office. The new emperor threatens Maxon in a letter. The deposed emperor sets off for Rome with his army, vanquishing France and Burgundy on the way. However, he spends a year outside Rome without becoming near to recapturing it. Eventually, he is joined by Helen and her warrior brothers and Kynan and Adion, sons of Eudav. Kynan and Adion construct a ladder for every four men of their party. While the warring emperors break their fighting to eat, the Britons breach the city walls. The new emperor, unable to arm himself in time, is slain along with many others. For three days and nights, the Britons fight to retake the castle and city, unbeknownst to Maxon Ledig. Maxon complains to Helen that her brothers have been unable to conquer the city. She replies that, The wisest youths in the world are my brothers. Go thou thither and ask the city of them, and if it be in their possession, thou shalt have it gladly. The gates of the city of Rome are opened and the emperor Maxon Ledig once again is seated on the throne with all the men of Rome submitted themselves unto him. The emperor gives Kynan and Adion leave to vanquish any region in the world they may desire to rule. 
The brothers conquer lands, castles and cities in the Amorica region of Gaul, which contains the Brittany Peninsula, slaying men and sparing women. After many years of this, Adion returns to Britain, leaving Kynan to rule over the rest. Kynan and his men then cut the tongues out of the women to prevent them from having their speech corrupted. Because of the silence of the American women, the men of the region became known as Britons. I will link the version of that story in the show notes. And again, to any of our Welsh listeners, I'm really sorry if I've butchered any of the pronunciations. It's not for the want of trying. The Welsh Saint Day of Ellen of the Home 22nd, connecting her to spring. Ellen is also honoured at Beltane when she opens the roads to travellers. Ellen of the Ways as Lady Sovereignty. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's making me think of the 2000s female rapper, Lady Sovereign. Oh my goodness, that came out the crevices, the depths of my mind. So Ellen of the Ways as Lady Sovereignty is said to be concerned overall with the balance of the energies of the land, with that of the king. The land was considered as feminine and it was the king who brought fertility and renewal to the land, which couldn't have been done by the female. This story isn't saying Ellen as a female couldn't have ruled. Many queens did, but points to the need for a king to ensure the land's fertility and renewal. Ellen is a guardian of the land and all its inhabitants, focused on maintaining all of their well-being, best interests and ensuring these are continued to be supported. The Sovereign King ultimately is there to serve her, the land, the inhabitants and although this is important, unlike her, he is expendable and can be replaced. Alongside all the inhabitants, Ellen of the Ways is considered to protect all roads, paths, the energies that flow through the land, including underground and overground waterways and ley lines. So this is a little bit more from Caroline Wise again. Ellen is Maxon's Shakti, an Eastern term for a divine woman who arouses the Kundalini in a magical way. In her Western form, she is the grail bearer, holding within her the sacred cup from which the royal line continues. 
along with the secret sexual magic that activates the energies of the land, bringing fertility and plenty. But Lady Sovereignty, like Diana of classical myth in her grove at Nemi, has to be one. The man who is to be king, who must mediate and radiate the sexual energies throughout the land, must be strong and true. Maxon has won the queen who represents the goddess of the land by staying true to his dream woman and endeavouring to undertake his arduous journey at her command. To order the emperor of Rome to do your bidding shows here the power that Ellen holds. She bestows his sovereignty. The dream of Maxon, however, contains several interesting motifs. It also contains a description of shamanic flight. We are all familiar with tales of shamans and witches flying through the air in a trance state. Researchers of South American shamanism have made familiar the idea that certain landmarks on the ground are recognisable to the shaman in his out-of-body flight and that some placed there specifically to be seen as signposts beneath him. But I recalled a booklet by a remarkable man named Tony Wedd called Skyways and Landmarks, published in 1961. Wedd proposes that certain alignments in England marked with stones, flash ponds and tree-topped mounds were to be seen from above. His interpretation of this phenomenon was very much of the time they were written, but his intuition and observations that what we now called lays were possibly to be observed from above seem relevant here. Maxon's dream also reminded me of what archaeologists were calling terrain oblivious lines. Ancient tracks would often go straight across difficult landscapes and cross rivers rather than taking a more convenient route. They make sense if they are to be seen from above. In Maxon's story, the alignments lead to Elam. I feel she was reeling us in. Again, I will link that in the show notes. So some believe the dream of Maxon Ledig is based on the Roman Emperor Maximus and his Empress Helen. The name Ellen is said to be the Welsh version of the name Helen. Other English variations are Ellen with two L's, Helena, Helen with two L's, Elaine as well. And there are many places with variants of the name Helen that Ellen of the Ways is said to connect to, especially if roads, pathways or tracks are involved. Some believe Ellen is based on St. Helen of Cainarfrom, the mother of Constantine the Great, born about the middle of the third century. She became the lawful wife of Constantius Chlorus. Her first and only son, Constantine, was born in the year 274. On the death of his father, Constantine, who succeeded him, summoned his mother to the imperial court, conferred on her the title of Augusta, 
ordered that all honour should be paid her as the mother of the sovereign and had coins struck bearing her effigy. She lavished on the land her bounties and good deeds. She explored it with remarkable discernment and visited it with the care and solicitude of the emperor himself. Then, when she had shown due veneration to the footsteps of the saviour, she had two churches erected for the worship of God. According to tradition, the empress, it says Helena, so it just gets confusing. I'm sure we're talking about the same person, but it is said that she discovered the cross of Christ on September 14, 320. She was revered as a saint and the veneration spread early in the 9th century, even to Western countries. Her feast falls on 18th of August. It does get a bit confusing, some of this information, but bear with me. I think that was the bit that I just got a little bit lost on. Anyway, through the novel Priestess of Avalon by Marion Zimmer Bradley. So we've actually referenced this before looking at Morgan Le Fay. Anyway, Ellen of the Ways has made her presence within this novel. In the novel, Elian, a priestess of Avalon, whose matron goddess is Ellen of the Ways, leaves Avalon after falling in love with a Roman. The story is an intricate weave of St. Helen and Ellen from Max and Ledig's dream, with the essence of the enigmatic Ellen of an earlier age. In Priestess of Avalon, she is described by a bard priest. She was said to have been tall and strong, having a love of dogs, and the elder tree was sacred to her. It is also written in the novel that all roads are under her protection, both paths that cross land and the sea. Ancient traders prayed to her for protection. She also seems to have had effects on agriculture, perhaps a fertility goddess also. The bard priest relayed that she may have been the one that showed the way across the sea to Avalon, the place where the waters meet with the land are special to her. She may be called upon when we seek to go between the worlds because she is also mistress of the hidden ways. The goddess Nehalania is introduced in Priestess of Avalon and we can't help but notice the similarities of Ellen and Nehalania. Another connection to Ellen of the Ways is Whitburg, also pronounced Whitburger or Whitberg. She died in 743. She was an East Anglian saint, princess and abbess. According to tradition, she was the youngest daughter of Anna and the king of the East Angles. But it is suggested that the royal connection was probably a fabrication. So one story says that the Virgin Mary sent a pair of female deer to provide milk for Whitbur's workers during the construction of her convent in Norfolk in Derham, Derham. When a local official attempted to hunt down the does, he was thrown from his horse and killed. 
Whitbird died in 743 and was buried at Derham. Her body was said to be uncorrupted by age or decay when her tomb was opened half a century after her death. And the church and the tomb have subsequently become a place of pilgrimage. So John Rees, who originally linked Ellen of the Hosts to the moon before changing his mind, also connected her to the Welsh goddess Arianrod through a tradition he discovered in Carnarfon in Wales. Actually worked on a podcast episode for the Patreon about Ariane Rod. I think she's a fascinating Welsh goddess. Anyway, she was said to have three sisters that lived in her castle in the sea, one of them being called Ellen. This brings us nicely to Ellen's association with the North Sea goddess Nehalania, possibly one of the closest deities linked to Ellen. And it could be that as the land changed, so did the deity early people worship. So we are now coming back to that wonderful essay, Ellen of the Ways, Celestial Reindeer and the Tree of Life by Chris Wood. As the glaciers declined in the late Paleolithic era, the climate became warmer and sea levels rose. The latter combined with isostatic changes, land that was under ice is rising and land that was not is sinking, led to a slow but stepwise inundation of the land from about 11,000 years ago. By the end of the Mesolithic period, around 6,000 years ago, Doggerland was gone. It seems plausible that a deity once associated with the Paleolithic reindeer herds could well have become associated with changing fauna as the glaciers retreated, the land warmed and the reindeer retreated northwards following the boreal forest. As the land became wetter, the peoples of the interior would have had decreasing habitat, perhaps further constrained by the spread of agriculture, whereas those of the coast would have found their resources increasing despite sea level rise as the length of coastline increased. Some of those in the interior would have changed livelihoods, others doubtless moved. By 6,000 years ago, the North Sea looked pretty much as it does today. Populations slowly adapting to increasingly sea-dominated territories would probably have kept their gods, but those gods would have adapted too. The coming of agriculture represented a religious change as well as one of lifestyle. As John Fletcher puts it, hunters across many cultures are or were animist and totemist in their beliefs and theist religions were only formulated by farming societies. The forager lives within the natural environment while the farmer seeks to subdue and have dominion over every living thing. It is easy to see how a goddess of the pre-agricultural interior would be retained by these marginalised by farming and reindeer are still remembered in myth and legend in Mongolia, for instance. 
The spirit of the hunt could have taken on associations with the coast and sea, perhaps exchanging deer trods for safe passage across mudflats or navigation between sandbanks and being transferred to the pursuit of maritime prey, perhaps eventually merging with existing water spirits. At the same time, people's approach to this being may well have moved from relationship to worship, As Wim Bonis, that is an author, points out, Nehalania could have been a local goddess of the Dutch coast in the Roman era, honoured by seafarers out of respect for the spirit of the land. But she could have been a memory of a much older being. Again, I will link that essay in the show notes. It's definitely worth a read. This association was first suggested by Harold Bailey. That is the association with Ellen of the Ways and Nehalania. Less plausibly, he tried to associate her with locations such as the Isle of Dogs in London and Port Newlin in Cornwall. Caroline Wise, who we've referenced, she's a leading author on Ellen of the Ways, disagrees with this sentiment. Another author you may wish to explore, I think I've mentioned her, in regards to Ellen of the Ways is Ellen Sentia. Caroline Wise, Ellen Sentia seem to be the two leading authors in respect of this goddess. Nehalania was discovered through Roman era votive altars that were discovered in the Netherlands in coastal areas. Due to erosion, a temple was discovered housed within a church in 1647 at Domburg on the Dutch coast. Lightning struck the church that the temple was within, destroying the artefacts. However, drawings had already been made to show what was found. Fishermen and divers found other artefacts in 1970 to 1971 at Collins Flat on the Oosterschelde estuary. Nehalania is depicted seated in a high-backed chair with a cornucopia or basket of fruit on her lap, a dog at her feet with a shell canopy over her and nautical symbols often make an appearance around her. In this region, Nehalania was considered a goddess of seafarers to whom they made devotions to in preparation for their next voyage. They would provide offerings to thank her for their safe passage. It is believed she likely ruled over their journey and at the other end of the seafarers' trading journey, she would also be honoured. Wim Bonis, the author that we've regularly referenced on this episode, speculates that the shell grotto in Margate in Kent, I love this because I this is like near where I used to live, that it is actually dedicated to Nehalania. Clay figures depicting the same goddess show a female sat in a high-backed chair with a dog in her lap have also been found in Canterbury in Kent. This is also near where I used to live. The shell canopy and back to the goddess's chair often give the appearance of this lady being antlered. Dependent on whether one assumed Nehalania to be a Roman, German or Celtic goddess influences the name she is given. 
She of the Sea is her proto-Celtic name, but her name could also mean leader or steerswoman, lending to her seafaring association. Her name could be a Latinized version of Nerthis, using the sea imagery of Isis and etymologies of death and hidden. Nehalania's association with dogs is often where Ellen of the Ways seems to link to this animal, but it also parallels with Diana and Artemis's association with dogs through their own hunting dogs. And of course, Diana and Artemis are heavily associated with the deer. In England today, there are various holy wells, 50 in total, dedicated to St. Helen, which seem to have resulted from 1106 onwards, when she appears in the form of a saint. In Abbots Bromley, Staffordshire, to this day, there is a horn dance carried out that reflects the identity of the area and is a ritual of protection, of prosperity, that likely originated from an ancient hunting rite. They use six sets of reindeer antlers that date back to the 11th century, many centuries after the reindeer became extinct from Britain. So Caroline Wise, she also talks about this particular festival ritual. Following Ellen's path, I attended the Abbots Bromley Horn Dance. This annual event is held in September, but was originally held at the time of the winter solstice. The team of 12 dancers includes Maid Marion, danced by a man, a Robin Hood figure with his bow and arrow, which is very interesting because Robin Hood links a lot to the green man, some believe, and we'll kind of look at this. So bear that in mind for where we're going to go in a little bit. There is also a hobby horse and a fool, as well as their musicians. It is said to commemorate the granting of hunting rights in the area to the common people, hence Robin the poacher and his lover, Maid Marian, and now the hunters, not the poachers. The dance starts at 8am when the horns and dancers are blessed by the vicar and lasts all day with the dancers carrying six sets of antlers, three black and three red. With its weaving step, it is haunting, atavistic and engaging, that's a new word for me this week, and quite an endurance test, giving the length of the dance and the heavy weight of the antlers. Mounted on wooden deer heads, they can weigh up to 25 pounds. These antlers are kept in the church of St. Nicholas. With a touch of geomantic magic, they must never cross the parish boundary. When the dancers are invited elsewhere, a set of red deer antlers are taken. So another way that the horned goddess appears is in Norfolk, where they venerate the Lady of the Chalk and the Lord of the Flint. In this region, chalk is the bedrock. It provides land from the sea and life from what has gone before. The flint in turn is born of the chalk and provides tools, buildings and defence. The chalk lady is depicted antlered or wearing the horns of the chalky moon on her head. 
There are five churches in the county dedicated to St. Helens also, along with a well at Santon Downham. So there are a few images of Ellen of the Ways adorned with vegetation, a horned goddess of the beasts or a goddess of flower and fauna. And she appears much like a consul of the green man. Her powers in this form are said to be strongest at dawn and dusk, which again ties to the liminal times when deer are usually seen. As the Green Lady, it infers she is the land itself. Some believe that Ellen of the Ways should have been equated with a Kaliak and not Brigid. Many also believe Brigid and Ellen of the Ways have many similarities, especially with the light concept. So coming back to you, Caroline Wise, a lady that knows her onions when it comes to Ellen of the Ways. As the Green Lady, she peeps out between the trees in forests and woods. As a British Venus, goddess of gardens, she is the flower bride. At her holy wells, mainly to be found in the north of the country, the UK, she is guardian of the underground streams that carry the sacred waters. These underground streams have themselves become a metaphor for the secret continuation of sacred wisdom. She is the guardian of the ancient trackways, the lays, the kundalini currents in nature, and as the horned goddess, she leads us to the first trackways, the migratory tracks of the reindeer, and later she leads us to the path of the red deer through the forests. From here, she leads us to the lost shamanism of the Isles of Britain, and we can follow her across Scandinavia, Russia, Mongolia, Siberia, India, and beyond. So if you are feeling the call from Ellen of the Ways, perhaps as a goddess that you wish to work with, I have an initiation ritual from the website orderwhitemoon.org. This ritual is apparently best done at the waxing of the moon, a time that beginnings are best and journeys reveal themselves. Your intent may be to find your way through a lost feeling or time on your path. Gather the following ritual items and place them upon your altar. One small bowl filled with soil placed in the north one small bowl filled with water placed in the west, a small mirror placed in the centre next to a white candle, a white candle placed in the south, and another candle, colour is your personal choice, placed in the centre. It says, keep in mind that you'll be reaching across a flame, so dress accordingly, so no, no long witchy sleeves, please, witchy <laughs> Create a sacred space in whatever way you are comfortable in doing. Cast your circle. You are creating a circle of power and acknowledging the elements with this circle chant. Circle your space three times, chanting the following words, like the white candle on your first pass. By earth, by air, by fire, by water, Ellen of the Ways, 
please come to your daughter. Once you have made three passes, go to the center and close your eyes. Visualize the essence of Ellen of the ways. Bring her essence into you through your breath. Breathe in through your nose, straight into your belly and hold it for a moment. Then release the breath slowly through your mouth. Visualize her guidance, her guardianship, her strength and wisdom of life's journeys. Breathe these qualities into your being and let them mingle with your very own goddess qualities. Know that Ellen of the Ways is walking the path with you. When you are fully aware of her essence, open your eyes and light your personal candle. Now it is time to bless yourself in the following manner. As you say the following, first lightly dip your finger into the water and then into the soil. Using your finger, draw on your forehead the symbol of a circle. This symbol represents the journey you are on, the path that you seek. Sometimes we may be inclined to think that we go from one place to another, when perhaps it is that we go in a circle, but with each pass, we grow the things that we need or weed the things that we no longer find useful in ways we are much like a garden. We are never the same as we were before. Hold up the mirror so you can see your symbol Notice how each pass around may darken, lighten, or smear it. Notice the path it takes. These are words that you will wish to chant or you might wish to use your own. Herein lies the garden of me. I shall nurture, cultivate, explore, weed, and then revel in the intricacy and the beauty of my garden. Long may I reap. Speak this last sentence with a strong voice, letting the energy of Ellen that you breathed in earlier flow back from where it came. Thank you, Ellen of the Ways. I thank you for your guidance, guardianship, strength and wisdom of life's journeys. Thank you for walking the path with me. Hail and farewell. So close your circle in the manner in which you are most comfortable, ground and center, extinguish candles. You may wish to make an offering of the soil and water in honor of Ellen of the Ways and yourself, if you wish. So I sort of talked you through that, but of course I will link that in the show notes if you wish to use that going forward. That's all I have for you today, witches. I appreciate it's quite a lot. I know we got really deep, but I hope it was of interest. I found this fascinating. I had some issues with recording. If you're listening to this on headphones, if you can hear an annoying car alarm, it is probably my car. My neighbors must hate me. But for the last couple of days, my car alarm has decided it needs to go off if it can hear like a gnat 10 miles away just move its wings. So if you can hear that on headphones, I'm really sorry and I'm getting it sorted. Such fun. On that note of other (laughs) non-magical mundane triviality, I may not be here for the next week. I am at that point where my life is crushing me with lots of things I need to get sorted since we've moved. 
not mining. I just haven't stopped, you know. So I'm going to take a few days off to get my life in order, to try to sort my life out in the space of a few days. Very optimistic, but I will be back soon. It just impacts on, you know, when the next podcast is going to be out. I'm just very behind myself at the moment. So just trying to catch up with here and lots of different projects going on at the moment. On that note, I'm really excited to say, if you look in the show notes, I actually have a website for the podcast. I have a lovely chap that set it up for me. And the spec was from me. I love anything medieval. I love goats and I love the film The Witch. And he took that concept and he ran with it and he made me the website of my dreams. So if you'd like to have a look at different projects and things that I work on you can see some of it on there I'll be back soon I'm sending you lots and lots of witchy love